Why does college cost so much? And why does it seem to be getting worse? Is it even worth all that money? Talking cost and value this week on College for Christians. Hi, I'm Chris Garrett, professor of history at Bethel University, joined as always by Sam Mulberry from Bethel University. So in the first few weeks of this podcast, Sam, we've mostly tried to help families probably just understand the landscape of higher education, unpack some of the vocabulary we use, and figure out what they want out of college and which institutions best fit those goals. Now, let's assume that you found the perfect school, but now you've seen the price tag. And now you've probably got some new, maybe uncomfortable questions about the high cost of college, and maybe you're even starting to question whether it's worth that cost. So that's our theme for today, cost and the related concept of value. As always, let us know your questions and comments at channel3900 at gmail.com. So, Sam, I think there are a few big pieces. Let's start with cost, and let's just, uh, first of all, get at how much does college cost? Now, in a sense, that's a pretty easy piece of information to find. It shows up in College Guide, shows up in, like, we'll talk about U.S. news rankings this week. It probably even shows up somewhere on the college's website, but it's not actually that simple a concept. You want to take a shot at explaining the difference between sticker price and net price. Yeah, so so sticker price is the if you paid every dime of of it yourself without any financial aid, without any grants, without any of that. So that is what the basically um one way to think about it is that's the school sort of saying this is the monetary value of your education, mm-hmm. um, but wait, there's more. And then they and then the 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 the, uh, the actual price or the discount rate, the net price, is once you start to add in uh, scholarships coming from the school, fi- uh, federal financial aid, federal grants, those types work of things, study. work study, all of those things that bring the uh, bring the that that are things that which are covering costs that aren't coming out of your pocket. Right. That shrink the size of the check that you or your parents are going to have to write that you might have to take loans to cover. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you used another phrase there, discount rate. Um, I'm never sure how transparent this is to families when they visit, but it's, it's, it's tricky. An important number. It's, it's tricky because the discount rate is an average right. because everybody's discount rate is different depending on your uh, your economic need, your, you know, your ability yeah. to pay. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So think about the FAFSA form you'll probably have. So, um, what you're seeing here are averages. Like the sticker price is the sticker price for everyone, but the net price could actually vary considerably. Like there are some people who will will actually get full ride scholarships. Um, even in a place like Bethel, I think historically there are going to be one or two people who come from such affluence mm-hmm. they don't qualify, they don't get the like the non need um, ones. Uh, it's a wide range, right? Um, and, and so like you might be thinking, well, why do colleges do this, right? That seems really strange. And it's there's a real debate going on in higher ed about whether this strategy is appropriate. You might have heard some institutions uh, uh, trumpeting lower tuition or what's called a tuition reset. For example, down the street from us, Concordia University St. Paul did this a couple of years ago. My alma mater, William and Mary, did this a few years ago. Uh, and in some respects, like it seems like a great idea, right? It tells you what the average, what the actual price is. I mean, it's kind of like uh, <laughs> I hate to start making car analogies for what we're you doing almost saying, have to, but though. it's kind of like. I hate haggling over cars, and I have made a point now that we simply go to places where they tell you, here's what's going to cost, and we can compare it to other places. We walk in, we pay that price, and we're done, right? And so I think there's a degree of simplicity and clarity and fairness that seems appropriate. Now, the trick is, it might not actually be better for you. If you are a lower-income family, 
it, it might actually be worse for you because probably what's happening is a lot of that financial aid is going away, at least what the institution provides of its own financial aid. Now, it's probably a good deal, actually, for upper income families that previously might not have qualified, like their net price may have been closer to the sticker price, but now everyone's been reset at the same level. And so the argument for why colleges do it, Sam has kind of hinted at, like the sticker price hints at the value, which is what we'll come to in the second half of our episode, which is different than the cost. And um, sometimes, like I remember talking about this with administrators and the argument would be, well, if you reset the tuition, people will think it's not worth as much. I mean, it doesn't seem like as high a quality or it puts you in a different kind of category mm -hmm. of college or university, right? Right, which, because part of how, how the... I don't know if prestige is the right word, mm -hmm. but 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 that part of it is the the cost that this is an education that cost you know so many hundred thousand dollars over the course of your four years, and that that speaks to something. It's a real dilemma, right? Like, I mean, one thing hopefully you've taken away is that this is a crowded marketplace. Um, it's hard to differentiate yourself, right? And so this is a way to do it. It moves you into a different tier, but it also then exacerbates the concern right off the bat that most families have, which is they can't afford to pay. They don't want to take on debt. They're not going to want to be able to pay off the debt or it's going to saddle them the rest of their lives. And so it, it puts a lot of places, if they don't have a huge endowment or something, right? Or if they're not highly selective schools that are turning away 98% of their applicants, it, it becomes a real dilemma. Like, do you, do you do a reset and lower the sticker price? Or do you continue to do this kind of game with right. Well, and actually, I like that you use the word game because there is a part of this as people who are teachers at a school who just feel like this is all marketing. This has yeah. nothing to do with what we do. This is, so it's, it's why I find myself often in frustrations when we're in meetings debating different pricing strategies. Well, when we get back to value, you'll see, I think we'll feel very conflicted about this because in a sense, like, I don't think it changes anything of what we do. Mm -hmm. Whatever the sticker price is, like, that doesn't have anything to do with our, like, calling to teach or motivation to teach or desire to get better and help our students do better. But it's obviously a big part of it um, on the administration's end and certainly on applicants end. Um, a couple other things to look for. There are always hidden costs in all of this. Like there's tuition, but there's also room and board. Now, again, not all schools are really aimed at residential students, right? Some are aimed at commuters who drive on and off. They're there for the classes, basically, for the programs. But, um, you know, certainly in the sector we work in, we are, I'm looking out at dorms and apartments right now, right? And uh, there are meal plans and there are other sorts of amenities that go with. There are student fees you'll probably have to pay. Uh, to pay. There are textbook costs to, to be thinking about. Um, and in a sense, there's a kind of opportunity cost. You know, We will talk more about financial aid in a later episode, but Sam in a previous episode hinted at the question of like, do you want to work as part of college or not? And that might be easier or harder in certain kinds of schools. Um, based on where the campus is, what kind of jobs are available, what kind of work study is available, what they're expecting of you. Can you do that and also hold down like a, a source of income um, as like a, a part-time or a full-time job? So those are part of it. And then finally, there's the one I wish more people would pay more attention to, which is the sticker price just tells you or the net price tells you a single year's tuition plus room and board is usually what it means. But of course, um, that, that you don't get a degree in one year, right? And this can vary, right? Uh, what you really want to be thinking about is the aggregate cost. How much is it going to cost you to complete your degree and graduate from that institution? And there are different ways of thinking about this. Um, 
Like, I mean, I think it's possible some families think, well, the way you control the cost then is you graduate in three years, right? And so some colleges will even try to make that possible. Next week, we'll talk more about the phenomenon of taking credits before college, essentially to shrink the size of your stay in college. This is what I did. I, I, I rushed through college. I took the maximum number of credits each semester. I brought in AP and I finished in three years because I knew I was going straight to grad school and I wanted to minimize the amount my parents were paying. Right. And that that's the way you can think about it. The flip side of that is I think most of us have this notion of this is a four year experience. Right. And so there's something to that. I think developmentally, we can even kind of see that four year continuum at some institutions. It is very difficult to graduate in four years because of the complexity of it. The availability of classes. Registration is difficult. Um, this is especially true at large and often state universities. And so um, I'll talk about some data sources later, but one of them will give you a kind of average number of years to completion. And, and so this is what sometimes makes private schools a little bit more competitive with public schools. If you can get through a private university in three or four years and the land grant university five miles away is going to take five to six years to finish, all of a sudden it's a kind of different calculation. Right, cost. because there is both the accumulation of like, okay, I have to pay for a fifth and sixth year and it's a fifth and sixth year that I'm no that I'm not in no, the workforce. Right, yeah, it's so earnings, like, right. yeah, so so it sort of hits you double in those, you know, in those years. And I should, we should say we're Working with a degree because yeah. that that's a piece of where you're headed. Yeah, and, I mean, so a way to hint at this because it, we do want to try to give you some ways of like figuring out because once you get past the price, it gets harder to figure out some of these things. A good number to look for for any school is the graduation rate, which is usually not graduation in four years. It's usually in six or eight years mm -hmm. even, and so that that'll have a couple of implications here. But generally. That gives you some sense that it is easy to complete a degree in a, a reasonable number of years. And if you see a low graduation rate, that usually should cause red flags to go up for a few reasons. But we'll, mm -hmm. we'll come back to that. Okay, Sam. So um, the numbers we will be throwing out here in a second are going to sound pretty expensive. And so we should try to explain why it is the college is so expensive. So let me give you a couple of numbers and then I'm going to have you start rattling off some reasons of why is it this? Sure. Way. And the, the key here is not just that it's been expensive because I'm not sure it always was, right? Like throughout much of the 20th century, you know, I mean, for a lot of families, it certainly was a sacrifice, but it probably didn't seem exorbitantly expensive, especially if you were in the realm of, you know, state funded education. Um, but even like a place like Bethel probably didn't seem uh, extraordinarily expensive. That has changed. So let me start with US News and World Report. Uh, we are going to have unkind things to say about this ranking, but I'm going to start with this as a source because a couple <laughs> of years ago, they did analysis of the average tuition room and board prices. This is sticker price at what U.S. News calls national universities. Now, one of the complications of that ranking system is there are four different categories. Schools move in and out of these categories to try to maximize the rankings. But national universities would be like the research universities, public and private we've talked about. But also Bethel is now in the national university category um, because it decides it actually competes better there than in the regional university category it used to be in. So understand, this is, it's mostly elite national institutions, but it's actually a pretty wide spectrum. Anyway, in that group, from 2001 to 2021, the average tuition room and board sticker price rose 144%, from about $18,000 at the start of the century to about $44,000 in the middle of COVID. Now, uh, 
inflation was up about 54% during that whole time. Everything got more expensive, but that's significantly higher than inflation. And that, you know, is, is the problem most universities have been facing. It's even more striking if you look at in-state tuition for state universities, because these are institutions that are supposed to be a public good, a public service. They're funded already by taxpayers. And so generally the philosophy was you kept in-state tuition low so that any high school graduate could afford to go there. Uh, in 2001, that average was less than $4,000. It is now over $11,000. So it's still quite a bit below most private universities, but it is not quite the deal that like my dad knew in the 1960s, right? Where he had no student loans whatsoever. Uh, in the same period, I'm oh, sorry. Um, so overall inflation again is 54%. Um, so that, that's, that's one kind of slice of this to give you a second set of data. This is from the department of education comparing 2011 to 2020. Now here they've adjusted for inflation. They're using what's called constant dollars. Private universities in that period are up 18% to almost $37,000 public up 13% from $8,300 to $9,400. Two-year schools, community colleges, are also up significantly, about 19% from $3,200 to $3,800. And so that, that's probably a more representative sample. And I would say generally, if you could look at a graph of how prices work at most institutions in the 21st century, you would see a steep climb the first 10 years, and then around the Great Recession, starting to level out, but maybe not quite plateauing, although some institutions are actually downward uh, a little bit. Okay, Sam, why have prices been going up so much? I, I have a little bit of specific things here with public universities, but in general, like, what are some factors undergirding the high cost of college? I mean, partial, partially it is uh, the services beyond the beyond the classroom right it's not that teachers are i mean uh, professor salaries have not raised you know by like 144 yeah. percent over that time but what you do have is um is more and more support uh type services i mean a lot more um, people working in student development, what we would call student life here. Um, you know, part of this is I, I work closely with folks in student life and, uh, I think they are, I think they do amazing, um, amazing work, but you know, they're, they're dealing with students, uh, both in the residence halls and beyond, um, who are, you know, this is a, this is a time in life when people go through a lot of crises, right? Mm -hmm. People go through, uh, mental health crises. A, lo a lot of mental health things tend to show themselves around these years. Um, so, so my heart goes, it goes out to the student life folks who are dealing with stuff that as a professor, I think about the things that irritate me. And mm -hmm. it's like, all I need to do is spend, you know, an hour with a student life person. And it's like, I will take my job over, over what they have. So, so for one thing, so there, there is that there, there's so much more of that. Um, at a place like Bethel, you also have uh, a whole campus ministries outfit mm -hmm. as well, right? If we're thinking about, if we're taking spiritual development really seriously, like you, you have professionals in those fields to do that. And I think these are fields which are increasingly, I think, especially student development is increasingly a professional field. Uh, and then you have areas like where I work, mm -hmm. academic support. Yeah. Um, so, so we are, um, we are actually a, the, I think, the third largest employer on campus, um, and we are supporting students uh, across the College of Arts and Sciences. About 44% of Bethel students in a given year will make use of our services in one way, shape, or form. But all of that comes uh, comes at a cost. And, you know, I was thinking about uh, part of this is inflation and part of this is raising minimum wage and things like mm -hmm. this. But when I – so I graduated in 1999, and I think – 
I don't think I was making $6 an hour yet as a, I worked for the office that I work as a tutor for the office that I work for now. Now our tutors make ten fifty an hour and are going to go up another quarter an hour next year. Um, so all of that ha- has this sort of cascade effect of like, okay, so academic support just got over the course of those 20 years got way more expensive because it became more expensive to recruit and hire people to provide that support. And it's like I said, ours is so widespread that in a school of 2000 students, if you're thinking, you know, close to 50% of them are using these support services in some way, shape or form, that becomes a very expensive thing. And I'm glad you started here because I think a kind of not unfair critique is that what's driving it is the growth of like administrative labor, right? The, the proliferation of associate dis, uh, dean positions, right? Like is a, is a common kind of stereotype you see, or a kind of amenities sort of crime, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, lazy rivers were a popular yes, choice. Kind right? of an arms race of, yeah. of those things. Right. Yeah. And like that, that costs money, both the initial investment, the upkeep, the staff that goes with it, right? And, and those seem ridiculous because they seem fairly distant from most of our conceptions of what's supposed to happen in higher education. What you're talking about is important because they, if they're not part of the curriculum, they're at least part of the co-curriculum or they're supporting student success in the curriculum. Absolutely. And, and I would say this, um, you know, if we're thinking about as as a student thinking about the cost, one of the big costs, and you had this as one of your hidden costs, is things like room and board. Mm-hmm. And that seems like an easy place to make a cut to yourself mm-hmm. and be like, okay, well, I'm just not going to do that. I'll live at home. Right. And, and that can work really well mm-hmm. for students. But of the things that I just mentioned, mm-hmm. students who live off campus, especially the further they're commuting, the further removed they are from campus, they – are not excluded from those services, but they tend to end up self-selecting out of those services or making it very difficult to make use of those services because they now live a life that is both on and off campus. Um, so I think that is something, especially if you're if you're listening to this thinking about either you or your son or daughter going off to their first year of college and you're looking at the cost of, of living on campus – I mean, there's lots of things you need to weigh, but that is one of the things that I will tell you I see all the time is that students who are living off campus, it just becomes, in part by the choices they make, it becomes more difficult for them to tap into those support services. And even though you're not living in the dorms, that doesn't mean you don't need those support services. Yeah. Well, and finally, just to be crass about it, you're paying for them anyway. Right. (laughs) I mean, I think this is the other thing that maybe people haven't thought about or realized, but this is not like when you pay tuition, you you sign up for kind of different levels of care. There's not like some, you're, you're all getting the platinum package if you come to a place like Bethel. Now, again, there are different types of universities, some of which really are catering to residential students, and they might not have that full suite of services. But again, there are reasons for those services, right? Mm-hmm. Like think about the mental health crisis of adolescence, of young adulthood. It's important that we have a fully staffed counseling center mm-hmm. plus resident assistants who in the middle of the night can deal with like self-harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and a place like Bethel, campus pastors who can counsel people through crises of faith. But one way or another, you're paying for those, right? Like student, when students sign up to meet with you, Sam, I mean, you're not on the clock, right? Like right, you're, you're right. not counting the number of visits and then saying my bill. That's just part of what they paid for exactly. with tuition, yep. room, and board. Yep. Um, and, and so that's what makes this, it's hard for us, right? It's hard for the people who make our budgets. It's also then hard for you as families and students listening. And why yet again, we should say, you've got to think about what you want out of college and what matters. And this will eventually tie back um, to value. A couple of other things driving up costs here. 
Um, one, to the extent the administration has grown, part of that is that there are just a lot more regulations facing colleges. The federal government is not super actively involved in higher ed in this country, unlike some other countries, but it does have regulations. For example, Title IX. Right. And so there, there have to be trained staff who ensure compliance with federal regulations um, who are there in cases of like sexual harassment. Right. And you've got to have people to fulfill those requirements if you're going to um, have the accreditation standing that universities and colleges need. Um, the other thing is uh, it's just inherently expensive for people like us to teach, right? First of all, we're, we're fairly highly educated people who are fairly skilled. There, there's not actually a super abundance of us out there who are good at what we do. And generally, most people want a pretty low ratio of students to each of us as faculty members. Now, you don't have to do that. Um, you could go to institutions where education is mass produced. Uh, and this is certainly something that online institutions are trying to sell, like essentially education at scale. And if you don't feel that need for a one-on-one -on -one relationship or what's sometimes called a high touch kind of relationship or mentoring, that might be fine. But if you feel like maybe it's beneficial for your student or for you to be known to faculty and to be in smaller classes, that means you've got to have more faculty around to teach those classes. And that drives up the cost too. Um, and so I mean, it's not unusual. I'd say like 30 to 40% of the budget is cost of instruction one way or another. And it's very hard to control that without having the effect of raising the, the student to faculty ratio. One final thing, if you're thinking about public universities and wondering, well, why would it cost more for like at least in-state students to pay? Uh, it's because public funding of higher education is declining. So according to a think tank called the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, overall state funding adjusted for, for uh, inflation dropped from 2008 to 2018 by a total of $6 billion around the United States. Now that varies by state, right? And some states invest more. Minnesota historically is a pretty high tax, high public investment kind of state. But every year, the University of Minnesota is ratcheting up its in-state tuition rate and shifting more of that source of revenue back to students because they're not getting it from taxpayers through state legislatures. Uh, and it's not just states. One reason that even the net price went up about 10 years ago is the federal government essentially reduced the number of families who qualify automatically for Pell Grants. The federal government will set a certain level of income at which you qualify for the main federal um, um, scholarship, which is called a Pell Grant, and that gets adjusted periodically. So there are lots of reasons for this. It's highly controversial in our sector. It's, it's very complicated. But maybe one takeaway here is that if you see a college that seems lower in cost or the trumpets that it has been controlling costs, you need to think about how it's been doing that. Sam, if you're going to be a heartless administrator trying to bring down the sticker price for a place like Bethel, what what would you do? I mean, you would start to you would start to cut those support services that because because when you are coming to school, I'm listening to you talk here, and it's like you know you're saying like oh if you're somebody who doesn't need this or doesn't care about student to teacher ratio or high touch and those things, it's like it's easy to feel like you don't need those things when you don't need them. Yep. So at the very, uh, when you're in the recruiting process, nobody's thinking about having, this is why uh, nobody's thinking about having a crisis. It's why we never, 
do a big push to talk about academic support services to students mm-hmm. during freshman orientation and welcome week. We talk to parents about it because parents are like, what happens if my student needs help? Mm-hmm. Students who are not yet struggling do not think about these mm-hmm. things, right? So if you're not thinking about having a mental health crisis, you're like, well, I don't need counseling services. So, well, we could cut that because that's not going to be a factor in you coming here. That would be the easiest place yep. for me. Now, the the like physical amenities are things which put butts in seats, right? That's right. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard. Like, I mean, part of me wants to say, well, let's start away from the mission, right? Like, we like all these things, but is having a golf team and a lacrosse team really important? Well, it is to some people, right? Like, that's why some people do go to college. Uh, and, and so often it does come down to, well, do we really need all of these different majors? And then we start getting into the na- nature of the mission of the institution, its character. Do we really need things like philosophy and French and anthropology? Well, no, in the sense that not a lot of majors are in those programs, but yes, in the sense that it's really hard to do a fully orbed liberal arts kind of instruction if you don't have humanities and arts and social sciences that might fade in and out of popularity as major programs. So those are, I would say, if you are looking for that kind of education and most people want some breadth and depth of education, that should be a red flag. If you see schools have just been slashing those kinds of programs, um, that, that, that suggests something about how they're trying to control costs. Um, yeah, I think the problem is the relationship here is a low cost probably is having some effect on the value. Mm-hmm. We would love to live in a world. Americans love the notion of they can pay less and get the same value for something, right? And I'm sure we advertise our, ourselves in ways that all other um, uh, companies advertise their products, right? It's a good deal. And I think now we're getting into some dangerous territory because um, I do want to talk about price and cost. And now we're going to talk about value and how you measure it. But Sam, I can, I can see you not wanting necessarily to have this conversation. So I will give you the opening word here. What's the problem with thinking about higher education in terms of words like value? Well, the the problem is if value is merely viewed uh, numerically or monetarily, right? Because actually, I do think I think the most valuable thing in the world is an education, right. but it's it's what we mean when we say value, right? Like that's 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 I think that's the sticky point. And I've seen your notes, and we're going to have that conversation about numerical value, and I think that's really important. But I, I think all of this keeps circling back to. What what why are you going to college? And and yes, you are going to college for opportunities, mm-hmm. right? To create opportunities. Because even if yours like even if you say, My dream is to sit around and just per- do personal philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, as a historian and somebody who pays attention to these things, I know that the way to do that is to live a life of leisure, which in part <laughs> means you need to have enough um, means yep. through one way, shape, or form to do that. So it's like, so even even those like idealized things you, require. You, you this. can also be an unemployed person in like salons in Paris plotting revolution. That's true. But there, there most, is that. Most people listening don't want that for their children. Right, right, okay. right. So, so, so I mean, so I think there is that, but, but um, I think. We, Every conversation we have on this, and I think we do say it every episode, is circle back to what do you want out of this? And I, and I, I would, I quite frankly would circle back to if college is about helping you become, mm-hmm. what are you hoping to become? Who are you hoping to become? And um, so, so to me, when I'm looking at the value, I'm looking at, I am looking at career things. I mean, mm-hmm. again, I have a son who's a junior in high school, and I, 
I think more about this than he does. And I, you know, as much as I want to have this idealistic view of education, I'm like, okay, well, what are majors that, that you could do that you'd be interested in that you would thrive in? But there's this itch, there's this itch in the back of my head. It's like, okay, and, and what can you do with that? Now I know the answers to those yep. questions, so I'm less concerned about it, yep. but it's not that it's not there. No. And we'll actually come back to this. That's actually an episode we have planned for later on. We'll talk about choosing majors and gen ed and the rest. Okay. So let's start where I think we don't really want to linger too long, but I think is important people and really should not be ignored. I think sometimes in higher ed, people like us uh, are loath to even address this, which is that for a lot of people looking in college, they do view it as a means to, if not necessarily material wealth, because I'm not really sure that's what most people are thinking of. I think they're thinking of employment, career, meaningful work, stability, ability to provide, which... In some ways, I'll go back to college as a source of job training. So let me give you some numbers here and then some sources for you all to explore on your own. So the first thing to keep in mind, if we're thinking about what is the value of going to college and we're going to put a dollar figure on it. On aggregate, completing a college degree is still extraordinarily valuable. So according to sources like the Social Security Administration, the lifetime earnings difference for college versus high school grads is about $900,000. Um, and it works out to about twenty to $22,000 per year. Now, that's on aggregate. There are jobs that pay very well that you can do with a high school diploma. In our second episode, we talked about the trades, for example. Um, there, are, there are certainly plumbers and electricians and carpenters that make more than I do as a full professor who did not have a college education. That, that is possible. But on aggregate, generally, that's not true. Now, if you really want to dig into this, uh, the Labor Department has, a, a, I think, a really helpful tool that I use in classes called ONET, in which you can look up any field, any profession. It'll give you like salary data, job growth, but it'll also tell you what the typical levels of education are required for that job. And so like, if, if you're thinking in these terms, that's the kind of research you really ought to do. You should not just sort of trust and then get upset if it doesn't seem like the calculations are working out for you later on. And I would just say, Chris, you on this on this show tend to drop a lot of like references to you know this website, that mm-hmm. website. I just want to double your your double your your mention of ONet. Like it is a phenomenal tool mm-hmm. for exploring. Oh, you know, yeah. it's like this. Our our career services office um, use this tool a lot, and I've I've seen them do this with students, and it really does. Uh, kind of open up possibilities to students in ways that they didn't think about. Like, what what do people do when they go off to work? Yeah, no, it's great. And, it, and maybe you're sitting there thinking, I don't really know what career I want. That's partly what it's there for because you don't even have to start with the job. You can start with things like interests, passions, skills, and it'll kind of send you to, okay, here are similar careers, right? And you can, like, workplace setting. Like, they're all things mm-hmm. you can look for. I, I think it's great. Okay, now. That said, that's kind of the very overall picture. This can vary a lot by college. So if you really want to know what graduates of any college earn over their career, here are two sources you can check. The first is called payscale.com. So payscale does a lot of things. It's not just what we're about to talk about, college return on investment, but generally about career information. And it uses... Um, individual surveys it's done. It uses company, like employer surveys. It also sometimes crowdsources things where users register and then they input, well, here's the college I went to, here's the job I have, here's how many years I'm in, here's my, my, my salary. So anyway, I, I don't know that it's always perfect, right? And I would take all of this with a grain of salt, but you can look under college ROI, return on investment, and you'll find a chart detailing the total cost 
average loan amount and 20 year return on investment for thousands of colleges. Now, the uh, last category, 20 year return on investment is the difference between that college's average graduate earnings after 20 years and the earnings of a high school graduate minus the total cost. So if you see the number and think, huh, I'm only gonna make $120,000, that's the 120,000 minus what you already paid and the difference from a high school graduation. Um, so including financial aid, Bethel ranks in the top 900, again, out of about 4,000 some schools. So it is in about the top like 20, 25% with nearly $300,000 after 20 years return on investment. And that's interesting to me because I'm not sure that's even mostly where we would talk about our value. I think, well, Bethel, we often talk about value in terms of other sorts of things we're going to come to, but increasingly... This is important when people come here because they want a professional degree or a STEM degree or business degree. Like I think this, if that's really what you're looking for, you really should be looking for sources like that and at least thinking about the differences if they do show up. Well, and that can, that can tell you sometimes the, the, uh, the difference between programs too, you know, like, like I think where you're, you know, yeah, I think that's, I think that's an, can, can be a, an important piece if you're looking at well, what if I studied this here or this right. there, is there a. Um, a second source here is called uh, at Georgetown University. There's a center on education and the workforce. Now, one thing this center does is it publishes, I don't know if it's every year, every two years, kind of analysis of different college majors. So not by university, but by major, what kind of salary they produce. And that's maybe something we should come back to later. But it has its own version of college return on investment, but it calls it net present value and it stretches it over an entire 40 year career, you know, give or take. That's usually how long most of us work. Uh, actually, Bethel is better on this measure. It's in the top 800 or so. Um, now, you have to be careful. Like The U of M ranks a lot higher than we do in this, but the U of M also, because of the nature of the institution, is training a lot of doctors, a lot of engineers, a lot of architects, a lot of people in like six-figure paying careers. That is not true, and you have to kind of compare apples to apples here if you're, if you're trying to do that. So maybe look at um, similar schools and try to get some sense of why there might be variety here. So if you want those numbers, that's where I would suggest you find them. Um, and I, I do think that bears some consideration, especially if, if listening to our second episode, you heard this is to prepare you for a career and you really resonate with that. That's the kind of research you ought to be doing, right? Okay. And here's why that's a really uh, incomplete way, shall we say, of measuring the value of a college education. Sam, what else, if it's not dollar figures earned over 20 to 40 years, as opposed to what a high school graduate would earn, what... What else goes into value in in thinking about college? Well, I would say I would say it is some of the things I was talking about before in terms of like uh, shaping who you're becoming, mm-hmm. um, shaping the the. I was going to say the I was going to use the language of skills, but even that sounds like a little bit. I don't even mean that in the mon- in the monetary way, but like. Um, helping to helping to help you craft your worldview. Um, one of my favorite professors always used the line that education is soul craft. Right that that this is um, this is shaping who you are, shaping what you value, helping helping you to make decisions about how you are shaping, how you're becoming that person, because then that will actually help you also assess the value of what you want out of the next, you know, 70, 80 years of your life. So I think that's a, to me, that's a big piece when I talk with my kids about, um, about education and about why this is what I've dedicated my life to is like, that's the part, um, where I, where I get excited. And I think sometimes people go to college or, or want to go to college with that in mind, but they almost feel embarrassed. They Mm -hmm. almost feel like, well, 
I sh- I'm supposed to be talking about this in terms of career, and I'm supposed to be talking about this in terms of dollars. But in reality, what I want to do is expand my thinking, expand my worldview, expand my set of experiences, mm-hmm. which, you know, and again, I, I don't want to say this, but all of those things have these positive financial mm-hmm. results as well. They do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I... How do I want to put this? Part of me wants to say you can't put a price on any of this, right? Part of me wants to say college is what you make of it, like we said last week, and you can probably do find a way to do all of this at many institutions. Absolutely. And maybe the lesson here is to sort of step back. If you feel a very strong fit with an institution and this is what you're looking for, um, I mean, as long as you can afford it, as long as, for example, one figure you should look for, I forgot to mention, is loan default rate which is pretty easy to find. Like, I mean, I think it's easy to understand why people tend to focus on how much am I going to be owing at the end of this. But actually, college loans tend to be not a lot per month. They tend to have low interest rates. And unless you see an institution having a very high, like um, Bethel's is less than 2%, I think, like 5 10 15% default rate, it can give you some level of trust. Like, you are going to get out of here with a career plus than all the things Sam just talked about. Right. Well, and, and let me say something else about about value. I, you 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 jumped on my favorite phrase, which is "college is what you make of it." Um, and I think when we're thinking about value, we have to also think about this as a two way street, right? That that the college is has some some built in value that it's giving you, but then there is also. There's also sweat equity that you put in, that, 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 that you build up because you can go to the greatest school in the world. However, that's if you go to your, your U.S. News and World Report list, you can go to the number one school. And if you're not putting in that, that effort or that commitment to it, you're going to diminish its value. Likewise, you could go to the lowest school on that list, or maybe not the lowest, but something, you know, in the middle. And like, if you're, if you're going there really dedicated to what you're doing, putting in that, that sweat equity, the value of that is going to explode Mm -hmm. because you're taking the opportunity of this education and compounding it with your effort and your sweat. Okay. Well, as we run out of time, let let me just give you a couple more sources of information or actually one to avoid and then others to look at. Because I do think it's fair to ask, well, so how do I compare these schools? If I'm not just focused on salary, earnings, sorts of information, I mean, I want some sense of like, how effective are they at cultivating the life of the mind, at, at generating it, it or is um, and enabling personal growth, spiritual development? Obviously, for us, matters a lot. Um, I mean, Payscale and their other sites will have like college survey data, right? And, and alumni will talk about their experience. One place you might want to look at is U.S. News World Report and other kinds of, of, of ranking systems. But I'm going to tell you right off the bat, be very leery of U.S. News. And I say this from experience. You might remember in the first episode, I said this, besides that I wanted to be away from home on the East Coast, U.S. News determined the schools I was looking at. I did not want to look at any school that was not in the top 50 of U.S. News. And in retrospect, it was utterly foolish. And I've understood that better. So a few reasons why. Number one, U.S. News rankings, which have the veneer of uh, um, transparency and objectivity because they're numbers in a chart, right? First of all, they're based on self-reported data for the most part, and institutions game the system all the time. A couple of weeks ago, Columbia University made headlines because one of its math professors realized 
it was um, tinkering with the um, uh, what it reported and how much money it spent on instruction in order to jump up to the number two spot ahead of one of my alma maters, hmm. Yale. Okay, and this happens all the time. Just Stanford did this a couple months ago. Uh, number two, it's based on reputation. Whole parts of this are just they go around to college presidents and provosts and ask them on a five-point scale, how good a school is this? Um, Sam, how, how does the provost of a school 200 miles from here have any idea about what a, what a teacher you are in Christianity and Western culture? Right. They, on, they only know what they know about the school, right? right. Yeah, exactly. So it's self-fulfilling. And C, the last set of statistics in U.S. News is basically it's the caliber of incoming students. It's what their SAT, ACT score, high school rank, high school GPA which can be meaningful, but that tells you absolutely nothing about the quality of education they get, except that often high-achieving students will continue to achieve highly throughout their times. It does not actually tell you anything about the learning outcomes of the school, just the kind of pool they're swimming in, right? And you could have a very good school with very low entering SAT scores that's terrific at helping them get the most out of their education, right? So that's why U.S. News, I, I would not spend much time with, except that it does compile data. And as long as you feel comfortable sort of figuring it out and you look at methodology, there might be some data there you could use. I would say if you're going to do something, use an alternative system. One of my favorites is from a magazine in Washington, D.C. called Washington Monthly. And for whatever reason, about 10 years ago, they decided to get it on the college rankings game. I like them because they emphasize three other categories that don't show up at all in the U.S. News system. They emphasize... Uh, I'll go out of order here. Research. Um, how much does the institution not just spend on research, but encourage like student faculty collaboration in research? And so especially if you're thinking about like STEM fields, that's something to look for. They emphasize uh, social mobility. What they're looking for are not just schools that take rich kids, charge them a lot of money and give them a diploma, but schools that take students from low income backgrounds. And this is usually measured by the percentage of students getting Pell Grants and graduate them on time. So go back to what I said about graduation rate is often a good marker. The one exception to that is not surprisingly, it can be very difficult if you are from lower income background, if you're a first generation student to navigate the system, to come out of it in four to six years. And so often schools that serve those populations do have lower graduation rates. And so Washington Monthly drastically boost schools that take in those students and graduate them. Bethel is in the top 100 on that measure in Washington Monthly. And finally, public service. I mean, Washington Monthly takes the notion that college is actually a public good, and so it should at least send a significant share of its graduates into public-serving kinds of employment, um, or at least send them into kinds of volunteering careers or like uh, pre-career things like the Peace Corps and reward schools for doing that as well. And I think that can show up not just in public service, but for us, like in church service. I mean, I think one reason our salary figures are lower is that disproportionately Bethel sends out a lot not just of pastors and missionaries, but of social workers and elementary and preschool teachers, right? I mean, service-oriented careers that wouldn't necessarily show up high on payscale.com. Final thing I'll suggest, if you just want a kind of uh, list of pertinent information, the Department of Ed Education for a few years has been working on something called the College Scorecard. So you can look up any school in the United States, get things like average earnings and debt, graduation retention rates, uh, which are pretty good indicators of both quality and academic support, and, and several other figures. So knowing that that's often the hardest part of this, just like finding data, that's often a good place to start. And then it's used by other places like Princeton Review and, and places like that. We use the same kind of data. So 
that was a lot to take in as usual for these episodes but hopefully this helps you at least again have uh, kind of language to use ways to maybe pull apart I mean, to, to analyze the data you do see and the claims that you do see colleges making and ways to think about how you relate cost to value. All right, next week, we are going to turn to a different subject, the changing relationship between high school and college, which in a sense does bear on this because one way people try to reduce the cost is by taking college classes or credits through high school. We'll talk about that next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.